0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blessed Child podcast. This is your host, Renee. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I have been kind of on the fence about what to do on this podcast. We've gone everywhere from personal interviews to education to current investigations. And I was just kind of not sure what to do next. And, um, so I've had to ref- I've had time to reflect a bit and it, and it came to me. I'm like, you know what? I started this podcast originally as a journey to publicly deconstruct healing from the unification church and v- to give you a visual, I felt like I was lost on a path, you know, being born and raised in the unification church and pretending I wasn't. And confronting all of the damages, long-term issues that go along with that. So visually, I felt like I was on a path and I was taking the path less traveled, you know, through the woods, and I wanted to bring a flashlight, and that was this podcast, so that other people could join me on this path. And somewhere along the way, I stopped and paused, um, because there were so many paths that came out of nowhere. And it's awesome. And I feel like so many people have flashlights now. And I am um, happy to take a break because we worked really hard to be here. And yeah, I'm starting to realize that this is a, a journey. It's not about the destination. And I'm learning a lot of things along the way. And I um, want to take y'all with me. So so let me just tell you how I spent my Thanksgiving. Um, I have been... So, like many other Unification Church ex-members, we are separate from our family, and many members also. So, my family, I went to Gop when I was 12, and I had three older brothers. Of course, my parents were already divorced, so basically my brothers were all I had, and my dad. But I went to Gop when I was 12, and when I came back at the age of 15... Two of my three brothers were already being labor trafficked on STF, and the third one was very deep in the church as a youth leader, so it was very normal to look at family abandonment and abandonment of needs and uh, a lack of connection between siblings, especially if you were of the opposite gender. Um, And we normalized the destruction of the family. And that was called ideal. That was our ideal family. My brothers were two of my brothers were already gone living in a van making money for Reverend Moon. One of my other brothers was kind of not allowed to talk to me because I was a female. And um, we had not spent the last two years together. So it was very like ostracized. I, I grew up pretty alone. Even though I had three brothers, I felt like an only child and I didn't even feel like a child because my parents had, you know, one of them. Well, I have three parents, but it was very normalized for parents to leave the family, to go on missions in other countries for Moon, to be PR representatives for Moon or for them to take very low paying jobs for Moon for the for the mission of the Unification Church. So already we have like uh, impoverished neglected, very isolating, emotionally isolating and lonely family structure at home. And this was my experience, but I was told and conditioned to believe that this was the ideal family because we all separately did our family pledges. My brother woke, the one that I lived with, he would wake up at, you know, six o'clock and do Hyundai Um, and and we felt like, okay, we had this uniting culture, so we're still this ideal family because we all have the same mission, right? All of my brothers are working very hard for Reverend Moon. So in a way, even though there was so much neglect and there was so much isolation, we thought we were ideal. So this is a very skewed belief system to have because even though I felt such extreme loneliness I didn't know how to identify that loneliness as having lack of support having lack of closeness I didn't understand that so I coded it as yeah my codes were all off like if I was a computer my codes were off and and I was reading a virus as healthy so anyways um growing up you know 15 years later, I've been very distant from my brothers, and I thought that the, that's how it's always gonna be. But through deconstructing publicly and hearing other people's stories about how they healed their family and how you know they gave it a second chance and got very close with their family, I wanted to make that a priority. I wanted to see who my brothers were. So (laughs) me and my husband and my kids drove 3,000 miles to Maryland for Thanksgiving and on the way uh, I saw all my brothers and we created some amazing memories and we got to experience family the way it should be where we prioritized each other and each other's health and happiness and it was just it was freaking awesome and um, yeah I just want to say it's not too late like if it's in your heart to to prioritize your family, even if you've come from a destructed family because of freaking moon and all his missions, it's still possible to make new memories if the desire is there. So that was really awesome. I, I feel so, uh, yeah, warm. I feel so much warmth in my heart um, to know that I could make that journey now at uh, as, as we are adults and Prioritize family because it's important. To me, it's important. And it's beautiful to see that reflected, th- those values reflected in um, my everyday experiences. So that's kind of where I was for Thanksgiving. Um, and not all family is receptive to you wanting to visit. I've experienced that with my parents. They're not receptive to wanting to have a relationship right now. And that's okay. Um, some people aren't going to have anybody that that are receptive to them Wanting to have a family and that's okay. You you can you can make your own traditions, you know. Be it with friends, be it with your own children or your your partner, or just yourself. That's okay. Um, so <clears throat> let's get back to the podcast. Basically, I um, committed to teaching everybody about thought reform, right? The eight criteria of thought reform from Robert J. Lifton. So let's just quickly wrap that up um, so we can get back to other things because I'm not sure where this path is going, but I don't think it wants to stay here too long. So we're going back to Robert J. Lifton's eight criteria of thought reform. Like any other good book or author, remember, it's always sprinkled with a little bit of bullshit. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, I'm not saying he created Like, he didn't invent thought reform, y'all. He just documented it. It's a blueprint. And you can't have thought reform without all eight criteria. So let me brush you up on what we talked about in the last couple episodes. We've already talked about um, thought reform as an ideological totalism. And the first criteria is going to be milieu control, where your information and your communication is controlled. There's going to be mystical manipulation, which is when things look spiritual, but they are in fact orchestrated. Then you have the demand for purity, which is when people do really bad shit, but because it's for the sake of purity, they get away with it. Um, And then you've got the cult of confession. So that's what I'm going to summarize today. Are you ready? It's not going to be too long. I'm just going to summarize it and kind of talk about it from my own experience as well. Here we go. Okay, so I'm basically, I have the book in my hand, and I'm going to paraphrase The Cult of Confession. I've highlighted a few things, I'm going to read them, and then we're going to stop and decompress, okay? So The Cult of Confession is very closely related to the demand for absolute purity. Um, It's an obsession with personal confession. Confession is carried beyond its ordinary religious, legal, or therapeutic expression to the to the point of becoming a cult in itself. There is the demand that one confess to crimes one has not committed to sinfulness that is artificially induced in the name of a cure that is arbitrarily imposed. Okay, uh, let's stop reading. So if your bells are ringing right now, thinking about the demand for purity, (laughs) that's, that's it. Moon artificially induced that sexual desire and sexual development was sinful. Um, so he called something that is natural a sin and then offered the a cure that is arbitrarily imposed, which is getting blessed. Oh my God, it's such a mindfuck. Um, let's go back to the book. Such demands are made possible not only by the human tendencies towards guilt and shame, but also by the need to give expression to these tendencies. So what Robert J. Lifton is saying is that people naturally have a tendency to feel guilty and to feel shamed. And we have a desire to express these feelings, to rid ourselves of these feelings, through, yeah, expression. And back to the book, in totalist hands, confession becomes a means of exploiting rather than offering solace for these vulnerabilities. So there's a cycle of guilt and shame. Everybody has them. Sometimes it's healthy, you know, you you do your best, you feel a little guilty or shameful about that job not being the best, and then you cycle through and reevaluate and do whatever you're passionate about doing and do it better. And that's a healthy dose of guilt and shame. It's not used against you. It's used for your benefit by you, for you to excel in whatever you want. But in a cult's hand or a narcissist's hand like Moon, it was used in a very harmful way. So the totalist confession takes on a number of special meaning. It is first a vehicle for the kind of personal purification which we have just discussed, a means of maintaining a perpetual inner emptying or psychological purge of impurity. This purging milieu enhances the totalist hold upon existential guilt. So it becomes a cycle of filling up with guilt and shame and then purging this guilt and shame and then yeah, filling up that void again. Second, it is an act of symbolic self-surrender, the expression of the merging of individual and environment. Thirds, it is a means of maintaining an ethos of total exposure, a policy of making public everything possible about the life experiences, thoughts, and passions of each individual, and especially those elements which might be regarded as derogatory. All right, this is all very wordy, so let's just skip ahead. The cult of confession can offer the individual person meaningful psychological satisfaction in the continuing opportunity for emotional catharsis and for relief of suppressed guilt feelings, especially insofar as these are associated with self-punitive tendencies and to get pleasure from personal degradation. So that sentence alone really makes me reflect on my time in Gop when testimony nights were once a week and everybody had their time to shine that it wasn't healthy. It wasn't helpful. People were telling their deepest, darkest secrets, and it wasn't in a supportive environment. We would um, tell stories about how parents are gone for months on end or how siblings have been given away to be raised by another family because Moon demanded it. We talked about even i remember a kid talking about how his dad would beat him and i've never forgotten that story or how an offering child was being raised with parents that were in their 80s and he was scared of being alone um there's all these different stories that we normalized and it was just it was just so sad it was just a bunch of kids confessing things that they shouldn't have to go through, but then they were put on a pedestal and looked at as like, oh, well, you're really, you know, sacrificing to know God's heart or you're given these opportunities for growth or to learn, yeah, God's suffering heart. And it's just like, man, it wasn't healthy. Cult of confession. But testimony nights did relieve some of those detrimental emotions of loneliness and guilt and shame. Yeah, it did bring some type of relief to confess at testimony night or during the weekly group gatherings or the daily morning services. It did provide some catharsis to have community in some sick, deranged, sadistic way. So that's the, the power of connection. It can be used, I mean, it's always going to provide relief, but depending on who's leading it, it can be, yeah, self-punitive or it can be confidence building and support building. So let's get back to the book. The sharing of confession can create a sense of oneness of the most intense intimacy with fellow confessors, and of the dissolution of self into the great flow of the movement. And there is also, at least initially, the possibility of genuine self-revelation and of self-betterment through the recognition that the thing that has been exposed is what I am. Oof. So that sentence reminds me of OLT in Australia. When we were being labor-trafficked for moon, we would have daily daily morning meetings, goal setting. And, um, and then at night, we'd have we would get back together, and all of us would confess our day's events. And I will be honest, it was so yeah, it created this sense of intimacy, intense intimacy with my fellow Moonies who were being labor trafficked. And I felt this oneness and this, this melting into the movement. We called ourselves the, right- the righteous ones. <laughs> so there is this delusional, intoxicating feeling of oneness that can come from the cult of confession. I am confirming that that feeling is very powerful. But again, used in the wrong hands, it can be damaging. All right, let's get back to the book. As totalist pressures turn confession into recurrent command performances, the element of public display takes precedence over genuine inner experience. Oof, that sentence. Woo. Yeah, okay, so the first time it's, it's all fun and it feels super intimate, but after you condition people to confess and confess and confess, it becomes a performance. It's true. It does become a, a performance, and the... The display of the performance and the tears that you put on while you're confessing and, and crying for God's heart and saying that you understand God's suffering heart and praying adju, ah, adju, ah, ah, all that stuff, all that bullshit can take over a genuine inner experience. And so it is no longer effective, but everybody's conditioned, right? So that's the cult of confession. Let's get back to the book. Each man becomes concerned with the effectiveness of his performance. And this performance sometimes comes to serve the function of evading the very emotions and ideas about which one feels most guilty. Ah, here's the mind fuck. Yeah. Okay. So we get so obsessed with performing about the confession, about fitting into the movement and performing and saying the pledges and saying the prayers that you avoid your own true feelings about falling in love with somebody or deviating from the ideal, quote-unquote ideal. And so you neglect your own feelings. Yeah, I mean, that's what I did. So back to the book. There is this inevitable confusion which takes place between the person's method and his separate personal reality, between the performer and the real me. So this is where the separation of self comes in because in a cult, you do have multiple identities in the unification church we called it the secular world and the church world you had to to use and that was addressed so it wasn't so weird when you felt the confusing dynamics of being in a cult and when you face that reality oh it's just this it's that's just my school self and this is my real self it's like no actually those are detrimental effects of being in a cult you're going to feel multiple identities that is not normal it is not normal to feel your identity split. Okay. um, I grew up thinking it was normal. It is not normal. The Unification Church conditioned me to believe that I am supposed to have an outside self and an inside self, and that is not okay. Okay, let's get back to the book. The Cult of Confession. Rather than eliminating personal secrets, it increases and intensifies them. In any situation, the personal secret has two important elements. First, guilty and shameful ideas which one wishes to suppress in order to prevent their becoming known by others or their becoming too prominent in one's own awareness. And second, representations of parts of oneself too precious to be expressed except when alone or when involved in special, loving relationships formed around this shared secret world. So even secrets get split into basically what you can show the cult, and what you can show yourself. Personal secrets are always maintained in opposition to inner pressures towards self-exposure. The totalist milieu makes contact with these inner pressures through its own obsession with the expose and the unmasking process. As a result, old secrets are revived and new ones proliferated. The latter frequently consists of resentments towards a doubt about the movement, or else are related to aspects of identity still existing outside of the prescribed ideological sphere. Each person becomes caught up in a continuous conflict over which secrets to preserve and which to surrender, over ways to reveal lesser secrets in order to protect more important ones. His own boundaries between the secret and the known, between the public and the private, become blurred. And around one secret or a complex of secrets, there may revolve an ultimate inner struggle between resistance and self-surrender. Just as an example, because this one's glaringly obvious in a purity culture environment like the Unification Church, if I was having feelings about a boy or anyone romantically, I would shove those feelings down because those were ultimately destructive. To reveal that would mean that I'm not pure anymore and I'm risking my status as a second gen unification church member, blessed child. So I was really good about ignoring those feelings so much to the point and suppressing those feelings so much to the point that I didn't even realize I was dealing with those guilty and shameful feelings. Okay, pause. I don't think I iterated how how destructive admitting romantic feelings is in the Unification Church, let me just reiterate for people who don't understand. If you admitted that you have feelings for somebody at the age of 14 or 15, normal crushes, the course of action that would be taken would either be starting a matching process where you're going to marry this person, like seriously high stakes, or you get sent away to another country to beat yourself for 40 days to like 100 and multiple 40-day workshops in Chambyong. So we're not talking about minor, minute consequences of your grounded. We're talking about total annihilation of your individuality and your autonomy. That is the stakes that you're playing with in a cult when you admit romantic feelings. So I just wanted to reiterate that, that this, this isn't low stakes. This isn't just fun and games. In the cult, in the Unification Church, to this day, there are serious consequences for admitting that you're human. And that you have normal, emotional, and sexual, and curious development. So I just needed to put that in there. Because we're not, I don't want you to to just brush past this. I don't want to just brush past this like it's something light. We're talking about complete and total annihilation. Which is a huge aspect of control in a cultic environment. Back to the episode. And I would then focus all of my energy on the guilt and shame I felt of having divorced parents. And that was something I could talk about publicly. So when I had Testimony Night, I would often talk about the neglect and shame and guilt that I felt about having parents like the ones I had. And it created, it conditioned me to have some serious relationship anxiety And to also not allow myself to have a conversation with my inner monologue. And I was self-policing to the point of delusion as well as multiple personality or borderline personality disorder. I just was not accepting myself as a full person. And I was conditioned for that. And something I was reading about generalized anxiety disorder is that somebody is conditioned to fear Things that have not happened yet, that's anxiety. Anxiety is having fear of things that have not happened. Whereas fear, real fear, healthy fear, is having fear over things that are tangible. So that's the difference between anxiety and fear. And I was so conditioned to have So much fear over things that have not happened yet that I would say that I had generalized anxiety disorder without even being able to acknowledge that what I was feeling was anxiety. I was conditioned to believe that cold sweats and not being able to swallow my own spit or my throat locking up or you know shaking was was just a spiritual experience or that it was I was supposed to feel that way. That was supposed to be the way I felt. To know God's suffering heart and to sacrifice my, myself and my bodily needs for the movement. Mm. This is all, anyways, maybe this is too much for people, but that's just, the, this is what goes through my head when I'm reading this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so let's get back to the Cult of Confession. Finally, the cult of confession makes it virtually impossible to attain a reasonable balance between worth and humility. Okay, also I wanted to add that these conditioned testimony nights that I had throughout my teens and my young adult life conditioned me to validate my feelings from an exterior source and not an inner monologue. So, I even recently have been addressing that I don't have to have a reason or external validation to feel my feelings. It's okay for me to feel my feelings as an individual person without exterior validation. But I had been so conditioned by this cult of confession to purge my guilt and shame and show my emotions. And only then if those feelings and emotions were validated by an external source, could I actually feel, allow myself to feel those feelings. And if you're like me, That might be a conditioned response from the cult of confession within the Unification Church. It created this codependent. I just had, I was seriously codependent and I couldn't, I, you know, validate myself and my existence without the approval of others. And I think that that is a response to growing up in the Unification Church, and it's taken me a long time to put that into words. So I really wanted to put that in there in case someone else is struggling with self-validation and self-worth and maybe some codependent um, conditions that you're dealing with. And I want you to just practice saying the words that whatever I'm feeling is, is okay and I don't need a reason to feel this way. It's just something I'm going through. Okay, you don't have to justify every little feeling. You don't have to seek validation for feeling the way you do. It's just something you're experiencing right now in this time. And that is okay. All right, let's get back to the episode. Ooh, okay. So finally, the enthusiastic and aggressive confessor believes that their perpetual confession is a means of judging others. The more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. And that is in a nutshell, summarizes the entire community that is the Unification Church. Everyone is self-punitive towards themselves. They're confessing all of their sins and their guilt and their shame. And it might not even be the things that they're really shameful about. At this point, it's a performance. But because there's so much performance of confession, there's so much more guilt and there's so much more precedence to judge others. And so that is how you have a toxic, damaging destructive cult-like organization. That is the cult of confession. So that's gonna wrap up cult of confession for today. I think that's a lot. Remember, you have to have all of these criteria. If you only have one, then it's not really a cult. If you're just having some confession, that's okay, like in a therapeutic environment. It's not like you also have a demand for purity or mystical manipulation or milieu control, unless you do. Uh, the reason <laughs> then you want to get out of that therap- th- that therapist's office. Um, the only reason we're talking about the eight criteria is so you can start recognizing these criteria in your own life, because we have been conditioned as, as little cult babies to seek out these patterns and if you want to break them you got to understand them so that is the cult of confession and then we have four more this the sacred science loading the language dispensing of existence and doctrine over person i'll catch you guys later in the meantime take care of your mental health of your well-being reach out to the ones you love and we will talk again soon